really trying to look at five questions uh, concerning this theme assembled under the Word. Uh, to this point, we've uh, marched our way through three of those questions. What exactly is preaching? And we'll continue to see the, the elasticity of that early definition emerge even in this session. Uh, what does preaching do? And uh, what strategies can we learn from that Athenian setting that all Christians, whether preachers or not, can employ? Uh, I should say that the first question, particularly what is preaching, is a very pertinent one today because we've become so loose in the cage and being able to even talk about it in any specific, with any sense of specificity. Uh, there's a, a book that's getting ready to come out that has been very helpful to me that that first section uh, begins to draw upon. It's going to come out under uh, Proclamation Trust, which is in England, um, and it's Jonathan Griffith's work, A Theology of Preaching, where they begin to do a lot of things, but there's an element where they're trying to construct general definitions. Um, but that work, of course, is going to borrow from... Uh, Robert Mounts' work on preaching, it's going to borrow from Peter Adams' work, which we've already looked at, it's going to borrow from Jason Meyer's work, and so there are a number of people that are convening around this ability to talk about preaching with some sense of definition and yet then allow it to breathe, having put something down. The two questions I want to deal with in uh, this session are simply this, where does Paul's Athenian discourse fall when we're talking about preaching? At what level is it preaching? Is it, as some uh, academicians have suggested, uh, an, a non-Christian sermon that is completely different from anything else we see? Uh, how do we think of this sermon in the midst of preaching material? And then the second question uh, what can we learn from it and put into practice? So where does the Athenian discourse, this uh, well-loved record that Luke has put down on Paul's message, even while, of course, Luke wasn't with him when it was given? How does this construction of Paul's work in Athens when he was there on his own waiting for Luke to arrive, fit within what we talk about in preaching. I want to say a couple things in this regard. Uh, first, I want to say something about the language. We mentioned in the first talk that the, a dominant word for preaching is keruso, and uh, that's the one that Alistair had this morning in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. It's... Uh, it normally is uh, this heraldic element that uh, proclaims the gospel from the scriptures for the salvation and sanctification of God's people. Um, interestingly, that word is used uh, 63 times in the New Testament, and nearly a third of them by Luke in Luke-Acts. 19 of the occurrences are in Luke-Acts. Interestingly, though, it disappears with only one exception between Acts 10.42 and Acts 19.13. That dominant word falls silent, save one instance in uh, chapter 15 when it's speaking about Jews explaining the Bible to other Jews, people that would have had those categories. A different word emerges, a synonym for preaching. It's the word that actually we get the word gospel from, uangalizomai. Uh, so you, this word now begins to take uh, greater shape and forms of that word take greater shape in this particular section in Acts. And I just don't want to miss that. It's used 11 times. And let me just show you the way it begins to appear. In 14.7, there they continue to preach the gospel. English translation, identical but a, a different word. It, they're, they're gospeling the gospel. That's actually what happens. Uh, you're going to see this as well in verse 15 
of the ch- same uh, chapter, men, why are you doing these things? We're also men of a like nature with you, and we bring you good news. Uh, you'll see it again in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city, they made many disciples. You'll see it in chapter 15 and verse 30. Or 35 and 36. 35 and 36. Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word with many others also. 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit where we proclaim the word. All of this is coming from the same uh, root occurrences. Chapter 16 and verse 10. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel there. Again, in verse 17, she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And then in this Athenian chapter, where we opened with Thessalonica, you'll see it there in verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you, again, this is, I'm gospeling to you. You'll see it in in verse uh, 13. And then in our own text, again, verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. Or verse 17, he's preaching, excuse me, preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Where does the Athenian discourse fall in the language of preaching? Well, just by way of observation, linguistically I'm mentioning that Caruso falls silent in this missionary journey period where the transition happens into a Gentile world, largely silent, and this word begins to take up dominant form. Now, these are like, uh, think of them if you've ever seen a magic act where they have these two big rings and you know they, the, the magician puts these rings together and somehow they, they are rolling together and then he can pull them apart. That's the way these two words work. They're evangelizing or evangelism or the gospel and preaching are synonymous and they go together. But what I'm saying is there is a way in which you can take them apart and look at them individually. The Athenian discourse falls within a section in Luke-Acts where we're talking about the progression of the gospel through gospeling. Not necessarily this uh, earlier tightly defined definition that might more likely find its way into a Sunday morning application. Now, with that said, let me say uh, one other thing, uh, two or three other things about where this falls. The Athenian discourse is not a Sunday gathering of the assembled. So let's just acknowledge this is a, this is a different setting. So when the people in the Areopagus were under the hearing and the, I will say it, preaching of God's word, It's a different situation entirely. Secondly, I would say that he was here by way of invitation to address the civil authorities, that is the ruling body over Athens, that determined what was going to be presentable on the religious landscape of our city. We're we're relativists, we're pluralists, we're monotheists, but the leaders of the Areopagus determined what had valid play here, what would be acceptable here. And so he's been invited, literally in a sense uh, detained as it were, and now having to make a defense for whether or not his message can stand alongside all the other things that have, in a sense, the stamp of uh, approval. So you need to realize then that uh, the goal of the Athenian discourse was not merely some evangelistic opportunity It fit within a a one-off situation in the apostle's life where he had opportunity to address town hall. We'd like you to come and talk to the town hall. And we actually have authority to determine whether your work in this place can go forward unabated or not. In other words, they're the keepers of the gate. Uh, I live in uh, a a politically and uh, socially... uh, strongly independent neighborhood, Hyde Park, Chicago, home of our president, uh, very important neighborhood within the African-American community in our country, 
whether it be Muhammad Ali or Louis Farrakhan or Carol Mosley Braun or uh, any, any number of uh, strong figures. We are fiercely independent, and there are keepers of the gate. And when we planted a church in Hyde Park 17 years ago, you believe me, I knew that if you didn't have the keepers of the gate with you, uh, they could turn you out of the neighborhood pretty fast. That's where Paul's at right now. Paul, what have you got to say? What would you like us to know? The other thing I want to say then, that uh, this is not an ordinary sermon in the sense that it's working from Scripture that's announced and then read and then proclaimed. In one sense, this sermon, if you just read it naturally, you'll discover it's actually not merely uh, necessarily working from a particular scriptural text to the people. It's almost working from some culturally uh, connected object to Scripture. So when we think of expository preaching, we think uh, in one sense you are preaching from Scriptures, and I want to suggest that in some way, I'm sure there are things we'd have to actually qualify this with, but this is actually a sermon, unique, one-off, almost like a, a town hall talk that will argue to the Scriptures. That's where it fits. At least that's my best understanding. Nevertheless, it's preaching, in my opinion. It's gospeling. It's proclaiming. Uh, And in one sense, as you'll see, you can actually make an argument that it's expository. If you determine that the text from which he spoke that day was the fullness of the Hebrew Scriptures right through to the resurrection. In other words, the whole thing. What was your text when you talked to the town hall guys, Paul? I took the whole scripture. (laughs) Now you need to realize that what you have here are summary notes. uh, Either orally given to uh, Luke from Paul or scribbled down and processed along the way and then constructed. But in all likelihood, this sermon might have gone on for an hour or more. Longer than I'll talk to you this afternoon. So what you're reading here would have had a fullness to it. It would have been expanded upon. And in my own understanding, the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures, the truths of them, even the connections with them, would have been fully known to someone that had those categories. To the second question, what can we learn from the Athenian discourse in regard to what we might be Uh, needing today. There's a a debate that's been raging now for almost a decade in missiology. And it involves uh, converts to the Christian faith from dominant Islamic countries. The question is simply put, to what extent must the speech and actions of new Christians in those countries be required to conform to historic Christian categories, for indeed they don't have many. If you ask for full and immediate conformity to Christian categories, it will almost certainly result in the expulsion of those new converts from their communities and making them the subject of intense relational and physical persecution. Or, as some missiologists about a decade ago began suggesting, is there not another way? Can't a recent convert who grew up in a place without any Christian categories from which they would appeal to Hebrew scriptures in any known way, can they not live their life out as, quote, insiders, continuing in the practice of the mosque and including giving them the choice on the role that Muhammad will continue to play in their lives? Uh, The debate got sparked by two people who wrote uh, under a pseudonym, And uh, it actually walked out these six levels, C1 through C6, this contextualization scale of what was permissible or not or how one needed to conform to Christian life. Let me put it simply this way. The Athenian discourse fits well within a missiological context in regard to speaking to those without categories. 
The issue of contextualization, which rests beneath the present debate, is not new. In every age, missions, home or abroad, find itself on the horns of a contextualized dilemma. On the one hand, we have to avoid an articulation of our message that is consistently hostile to outsiders, their context, their belief, their practice. I mean, if that's all we had was this message, this iconoclastic message of hostility, we would set ourselves up as always being against the world. We would diminish our chances of ever gaining a hearing of the gospel from the people who are in the world. In other words, we'd get shut down before we ever started. On the other horn of the dilemma, though, Christians must avoid accommodating the gospel message to such an extent as to get its meaning, uh, as to gut its meaning, and undermine any usefulness to the world. Let me just put it as simply as I can. That is the challenge of contextualization in some sense, the pressures we're up against. If we are always speaking against the world and their ways, we run the risk of being rejected by the world without ever presenting the gospel to the world. Yet if we assimilate to the world, as David Wells has adequately pointed out in all of his writings over the years, you will forfeit any faithfulness to the gospel and become uh, largely marginalized in the wrong sense. You'll be of no use to God. And so this discourse gets talked about often. Paul, before the Areopagus, the men of Athens. What can we learn? First, his ability, by way of introduction, to turn an iconic cultural icon, and indeed it, it was an icon, at least at minimum, this altar to the unknown gods, to turn that object into conversation on God. Paul, rather than drawing upon a text from Scripture and announcing it and reading it and expounding it, pulled, pulled from the streets of Athens, gleaned from his religious surroundings a claim that they had had, namely an altar to an unknown God. Now, interestingly, if Paul had arrived at Athens by boat, which if you look back at 16 uh, 14, it appears that that's probably, that is what happened, not probably. <laughs> then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. And so if he arrived in Athens by boat, he would have uh, disembarked along a, a peninsula, probably five miles to the south of Athens in a port, and he would have probably had to walk about five miles from the port up into the town or the city. And we have a description of that very place about 100 years later. Uh, this is a wonderful little piece of historical significance. There was a tracker named Pausanias, and he wrote uh, a little work called Descriptions of Greece. We actually have that. It didn't, we didn't lose it to uh, antiquity. It's in the Loeb classical uh, series. And he has a description of this port and this uh, walk up, and he records for us that along the footpath near the harbor, there were, quote, altars of the gods unknown. Now, rather than selecting a text to expound, as he might have done in a synagogue, Paul then takes hold of a well-attested object and began his speech there. Now, let me make a, a few observations on this. It should come as no surprise to us today that the intellectual powerhouse of Greek civilization was quite at home to live in a world that acknowledged altars of gods unknown. L literally, agnosto, from which we get agnosticism. I mean, how many of your friends live by this altar? Most of them. And so there's a wonderful point of contact here. Indeed, anyone, uh, even in the academy, uh, unless you're a, a couple of uh, University of Chicago uh, evolutionary theorists or, or a couple of uh, people in England like Dawkins who, who kind of trumpet the scientific, popularize it, evangelize it toward atheism. Most of their colleagues even reject those, those far-end folks who don't leave any room for something unknown. 
Uh, this is one of the hallmarks of living in a university context. Um, once, you, once I'm talking to friends who are studying a particular discipline at the University of Chicago, as soon as you ask them anything outside their field, their answers are always the same. They say, well, that's not my field of study, so I can't speak definitively on that. But what I would say would be, and then they go off. In other words, academicians are always backing up from knowing, particularly when it relates to things they're not acquainted with. That's a mark of true humility. That's liberal arts in the best sense. And in Athens, it fit perfectly with the Athenian aspiration to rise above the base instincts of life, food and sex, to aspire to something beyond military success or materialism, to give yourself to the mind and to cultivate the rigorous disciplines of life that would give meaning and purpose. And so they're discussing these things all the time. I don't uh, think I'll forget uh, when my uncle came to visit me in the neighborhood. Uh, we're driving down the street a couple blocks from the University of Chicago. I live right in the middle of it. And there's a Catholic church. And without blinking, we haven't even come up on it yet, he goes, oh, that's St. Thomas. Uncle Hubert, how did you know that that was St. Thomas? He said, well, we're close to the university, aren't we? I said, yes. He goes, well, every university... The patron saint of all academicians is St. Thomas, Doubting Thomas. And I began to think he might be on to something. <laughs> People who give themselves to the life of the mind are wise to give themselves to the altar of the gods unknown. Van Til put it this way. Quote, even among the cultured, it was in good style to recognize the fact that there was more in heaven and on earth than they had yet dreamed of in their philosophy. They were perfectly willing, therefore, to leave open a place for the unknown. But, and this is what you'll see in the university context today, this unknown must be thought of as utterly unknowable and indeterminate. In other words, we prefer the land of unknown. A couple applications on this first point in regard to what we can learn from the Athenian discourse, namely that he begins making a connection with a cultural icon and he will move it to conversation on the gospel. Let me just ask you about your own illustrative approach with your friends. This is an illustrative benefit. Are you able, have you thought long enough about the unknown gods of Albuquerque to know how to turn your particular cultural icons into conversation on God? It's worth thinking about. It helps us get to the heart of the people with whom we are living. But I want to make another application, which I think is more important, not merely this illustrative approach that we can benefit from. I call it an integrative approach. Paul does something here which is interesting. He is not afraid of being uh, an integrative preacher, to integrate his understanding of what God has done in history with the understanding of the peoples in regard to God. Let me put it this way. He's not iconoclastic. He doesn't get off the boat, see these gods, even though, look, his spirit was provoked in verse 16. He is provoked and rightly provoked. In fact, many of us today need a little bit more of this, the, the inner provocation of the idols around which we live and walk each day. But even though he had that inner provocation, which was right and righteous and just, he's not a kind of classic. He doesn't uh, tip it over on his way up to Athens. He doesn't say, you know, I'm coming into Athens. I'm rounding up all the conservatives I can. I'm renting the billboards. Down with the Athenian aspiration. 
No, he doesn't do it. Why? Because he's smart enough to know that if you rid your city, Albuquerque, of all of its external icons, let's put it differently, idols, you are no closer to winning the internal heart of the citizenry. We must go for the heart, a change of the heart. And we can find that we could have the cleanest, healthiest, least corruptive cities in the world. Don't come to Chicago. We could get it all cleaned up and not necessarily be any closer to winning our friends, neighbors, and families to Christ. It's an important thing for us to learn. Take that from the Athenian discourse. The second thing I want you to notice about the discourse is the command Paul has of the grand sweep of biblical history. This is stunning to me. Many of us are able to recall certain Bible stories, isolated events, but how many of us could easily trace the entire plot line of the Bible in five minutes? I mean, try it over dinner tonight. Welcome to dinner. Well, we went to that conference over at Desert Springs. Here's the exercise before dessert. Five minutes. What's the message of the Bible? Uh, 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 what's dessert? <laughs> Let me show you his command of the grand sweep of biblical history. Look where he begins, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of the heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He begins at the beginning <laughs> with God as the creator of the heavens and the earth. Now look where he is by verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. By verse 31, he ends at the ending with God judging the world in righteousness. In eight verses, <laughs> he moves you from Genesis to Revelation in a sense, or, or to put more, more concretely here, from from creation to what is the consummation event. In eight verses. And in between, he reveals in verses 24, at least the latter half in verse 25, humanity's great problem. I mean, he takes on idolatry, sin, and he addresses it immediately. In other words, he begins to move from creation to the continual human problem that we worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. Take a look, verse 24b. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He hits humanity's greatest problem, that we are creatures who worship the created order. And we make idols. And then when you get to 26 and 28, he emphasizes not only the downside of the human problem, our sinfulness before God, who is our creator, but he now emphasizes that unity that God has put all of us there, verse 26, and he made one man, every nation of mankind, to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of the dwelling place. I mean, here we are, we're all here, we're all, every nation, living in ways that are not pleasing to God. And yet, here comes the hopeful line, verse 27, humanity's need of God's eternal relationship, they that they should seek God or perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, or as some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. He introduces the downside of human life, our complete human condition, yet, he says, yet, yet, 
God, like, 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 in, the, like in the movie The Matrix or something, he, he's a lot closer than you think. He hadn't, you know how you've seen these movies where someone stands on, a, on the movie screen and they, 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 they put their hand through something? They go into another universe and then they come back? That's what he's saying. He's saying to the Athenians, God, whom we have offended, is as close as the air that you breathe. Indeed, he's given us life. He recognizes, even from their own authorities, this is their belief. And then, after this simple move, from beginning at the beginning, ending at the ending, showing our need, showing God's desire to be in a relationship, he explains that we are culpable, that we need to repent, and he grounds everything in the resurrection. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he's given assurance by the resurrection from the dead. He's taken the whole sweep. So you ask me, is this an expositional sermon? Well, I could say, well, I didn't hear the text read. Ryan didn't come up and read it before. But it seems to me he's preaching the whole Old Testament. He's, he's preaching the whole thing. It's preaching that doesn't necessarily move from Scripture, but to Scripture. And then through the Scriptures which then makes it <laughs> from Scripture that it might give life. Now, he's got absolute command of the Bible as one story. Uh, so here's an application. Do you? Do you have absolute command of the storyline of the Bible? Don, last night, shamelessly, shamelessly, plugged his own book on this very thing. <laughs> And for all of those who you are, if your reading level is six-year-old, well, then you ought to read Dave Helms' The Big Picture Story Bible. <laughs> I, that, that's something you need to do in the next year. You need to say, I got to get a biblical theology. I got to get an ability to tell the whole story of the Bible in five minutes, and I don't have that now. And if you don't have that now, how are you going to talk to the people that don't have any categories from which you would normally relate? So the first thing you got to do to get a biblical theology is to get a biblical theology. I cut my teeth on Gerhardus Voss. I wouldn't recommend that first. I went from there to Jonathan Edwards. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. I went from there to Graham Goldsworthy. It was good, but it's a particular vein. Vaughn Roberts is a very excellent book. Someone in the bookstore can help you. Don's book is spectacular. And my feeling is if you can win the six-year-old, you got them all which I guess makes that one the best. <laughs> the things we do in the afternoon sessions to keep them moving. Get a hold of it. When we planted Holy Trinity Church in Chicago 17 years ago, my colleague, my brother-in-law, John Dennis, wrote the following words. And just imagine, this is a young group. We want to plant a church. This is what he wrote. At Holy Trinity Church, by the blessing of the Holy Spirit, biblical theology will be the first element of our evangelism. As a congregation, we will blaze with excitement at the privilege of announcing from all the scriptures that Jesus is Christ, the Lord. Young and old, man or woman, we will know the storyline of the Bible. And we will know the Christ of the Bible. If this is a genuine need of our age in the area of witness, it narrows our energies with laser focus. We must ask God to birth in our midst, in Holy Trinity, a people steeped in biblical theology. Together we must cry out to God for a people 
who have learned to hear the melodic line of the Bible. And together we must depend on the Holy Spirit to show us how the parts relate to the whole. This is the first task of our leaders to train us in the overarching message of the Bible as fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is our highest priority. This is our first step in evangelism. We must understand the Bible. Now, if you don't, you don't know my brother-in-law, that, that's just vintage John Dennis. Paul knew the Bible. And as a result, when a day came and somebody said, hey, you think you get over to that Kiwanis Club and give me 15 minutes? A talk for 15 minutes at the Rotary Club? You're ready. You're ready. He had a command of it. Next, uh, he had a commitment not only to the grand sweep, but of the, particular, the particulars that are Christian. Now, I know there are many Christian apologetics, uh, apologists and secular academicians who look at the Athenian discourse and call it a non-Christian sermon. And I just can't agree. It makes the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ at the center of all things. It's almost as if it says creation stands here, consummation stands here, the resurrection stands here, and it's the link between all things. The fact that we have a resurrected Christ implies that we have a creator. Resurrection implies the creation, as Van Til would put it. And the resurrection then, as Alistair Begg put it to us this morning, is the driving thing that will move everything to the final day. He has those in his mind. He speaks of God as a creator. Christ is resurrected. The judge coming. If that's not Christian, I don't know what is. And he does so all within the context, remember, of verse 17 and 18, the name Jesus. He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Not some abstract theory, but this one. Do you have the ability to speak of the Christian message in ways that don't impale <laughs> your chances for conversation? Just think of it. Let me, I, think, I think we got a little harder than Paul uh, in regard to trying to think of God as creator, at least in the West today. I mean, you, if you, get a, you go home to your workplace and go, I believe God is the creator. God, creator. Wow. You, there's hardly anything you could say today that would probably take more time to wade through because you're going to be immediately associated with all kinds of things related to creationism whether you like it or not, whether you hold it or not, you're going to have all these hurdles to overcome. But let me tell you, there is no way to preach the Christian message outside of being able to talk to people about God as our creator. We have to do this. This is the heavy lifting we need to do. Take a look at Revelation, just for one instance. Revelation 4. 11, they're casting their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. If we capitulate on the doctrine of creation, or by that I mean God as our creator, there is no Christian message, therefore, to proclaim. We give him, we ascribe to him, for he is our creator. This is something that everyone in Albuquerque needs to know. If they say to you, why do I need to become a Christian? Because God is your creator. And you are to live under his rightful rule. Well, there's work for us. There's work for us. Let me move on. In the message, there's, uh, there's things for us here regarding humanity as an inadequate worshiper. In your efforts to do contextualization, you must realize that at some point, Christianity must confront 
the human condition. I, I love verses 24 and 25 for the negatives. Take a look at them. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, verse 25, nor is he served by human hands. I mean, that is a direct assault on the way most Americans think they relate to God. So, this idea of contextualization is being attractional. And, and am I able to talk about the unknown God? And am I, and am I able to navigate the perilous you know, cliffs of, of God as creator? And if I get all through that, then, then are they going to really be my friend and nothing ever is going to go wrong and I, I'm just going to talk to them next about God being love. No, what Paul does in the Athenian discourse is say, well, let me tell you where you've got it wrong. He's not like this. He's not like that. You don't come to him in this way. Indeed, he, he, he opens with this line of ignorance, but then he kind of leads them on a leash from ignorance to culpability and from culpability to ultimate accountability and from accountability to repentance. All in one sermon. This is not a three-year relationship with the civil authorities in Athens. This is not, well, I'm going to get to the bad stuff at some point, but whoa, we're not ready yet. Paul does all of this in one talk. He connects, he's, he's Christian, he confronts, and this is something all of us need to be able to do. The Bible has a word for this, you know, the way that we have strayed in our approach to God, and the word is idolatry. Uh, Augustine put it this way, uh, what is idolatry? He loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. In other words, an idol is we delight in them rather than delighting in God. All of our family members and friends and colleagues who don't know Jesus nor the day of accountability that's coming need to be gently and lovingly told that we don't approach God certain ways and that we might have done it in ignorance or in a time of ignorance when we didn't know any better, but those days are done. And they're not done just because I'm telling you it's done by your own experience. No, they're done because God sent his son into the world and raised him from the dead, and now he has a king, he has a judge. And you come to him because he is your maker and your judge. Much of our contextualization today doesn't uh, give much of a window to this idea of repentance. And yet here it is. Verse 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. There it is. That's the Christian gospel. Mortimer Adler uh, became a Christian late in life. Before his, convent, uh, his, uh, his conversion, he, he, he writes later on why he was so reluctant. Let me, let me read it to you. It's so spectacular. He writes, and in, in why, why it took him so long, quote, there's a great gulf between the mind and the heart. I was on the edge of becoming a Christian several times, but didn't do it. I said, if one is born a Christian, one can be lighthearted about living up to Christianity. But if one converts by a clear, conscious act of will, one had better be prepared to live a truly Christian life. So you ask yourself, are you prepared to give up all your vices and the weaknesses of the flesh? That's repentance. Humorously, sometimes I have told people, and I think I'm wrong on this theologically and probably need to get rid of the joke. I've 
sometimes said, well, you know, the only people that get into heaven are those who have a vice. I mean, that's the prerequisite. Because, you know, it's grace and we're all sinners. and The only people up there, they all got vices. Well, it's humorous, but it's not quite true, is it? It's uh, going to be filled with people who have repented from our vices. Turned. This is the way uh, he speaks of the Thessalonians. He, they had come to the true and living God having turned from those idols to serve him. And interestingly, I love this, and learn how to wait for his appearing. That's the application of coming to Christ. Is that It, it isn't just that uh, you've, you've turned from something. You actually learn how to wait. You learn how to not feed the things that kill you. This is what Paul calls them to do. To repent. It's why anyone who comes to Christ as an adult needs to think it through on the front side. But we need to because according to verse 31, there's already a judge over the world who stands in righteousness and there is a day appointed where we will be having to give account. And we know this by God's raising him from the dead. See, the resurrection doesn't necessarily, well, I don't want to say anything about necessarily Jesus isn't God, but it's, it's not there to necessarily say, Jesus, he resurrected from the dead, don't you see he's God? What the resurrection from the dead proves is that it vindicates his righteous life. It vindicates his perfect obedience in life. Death could not hold him. Therefore, God has given him a name above all names that every person is going to have to bow and stand before. And it's that resurrection that's there. And he calls them to that on that basis. Now, interestingly, I think this would have been perfect for the Athenians. Do you see that little phrase there in verse 28 where he, he lands on one of their writers? In him we live and move and have our being. It's uh, Epimenides. Now, Epimenides has a history with Athens. Let me describe it for you. The most famous story about Epimenides involves a very long nap. Uh, a nap of, what was it, 57 years. In theory, the way the story is told, he was a young prophet sent by his father to seek out a stray sheep. He lost his way on the path. He fell asleep in a cave, and he slept there for 57 years. It's like an old modern-day Rip Van Winkle story. And when he rose up from his long sleep, he, he sought his farm. He couldn't find it. And eventually, he ends up uh, on his way, and Diogenes actually reports that he had a role to play in, a, in, in assuaging a purge, uh, purging uh, a pestilence that had come through Athens. So uh, according to the account, there's a tyrant ruling over Athens, and uh, a pestilence breaks out, and Epimenides is summoned to come from Crete. You know, he's also quoted by Paul in 1 Timothy or Titus, maybe. And so he comes into Athens, and he purifies the city. And the town council passes an ordinance instituting a permanent preservation and maintenance for Epimenides' altars. It's in a passage uh, that Diogenes writes, Hence, even to this day, altars, which is the same word we have in our text here, may be found in parts of Attica with no name inscribed on them, which are memorials of that atonement. That God, a, a, a monument with no name ascribed to the time where Epimenides, in theory, was raised from the dead and came in and purified the people. Well, wouldn't that be amazing if, if and I'm not saying he is necessarily, but if Paul is bringing a story to their mind connected to their city on the resurrection and then going into further dialogue with them on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Wow, if that's the case... This is some elevated evangelistic talk. 
Well, what do we take from it? What happens from this? I want you to see what happens as a result of all of this. What happens when the preaching of the gospel goes forth? Well, it's what we've seen last time in all of Acts. Notice the response, verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. That's rejection. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. That's a renewed interest. But some of the men, verse 34, joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Some people have looked at this and said, well, the Athenian discourse, you know, didn't really work very well. He'd have been better just announcing a text from the Hebrew scriptures and giving a good run. Not so. There are converts that come from this. Eusebius, the church historian, writing in about 325 A.D., references the bishop of Corinth of considerable years before who has a written record that Dionysius, the Areopagite, becomes the first bishop of the church in Athens. So there's this external, biblically external source that actually would indicate that not only was a man converted here and a woman and others, but you might have actually had the core group of a church plant of which now Dionysius the Areopagite becomes eventually the pastor. I'm not sure, can't tell from the language whether it's over the one church in Athens or if, it's, he's, if he's a, an episcopus or a bishop over a lot of churches in Athens. But at any rate... Converts come, and in all likelihood, a church is planted, even if we don't have a New Testament letter to the church at Athens. Well, where have we traveled? May it be so for us. May God so use our gospel speech to win men and women to Christ. And may we employ the full range of our abilities to that end. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this time together today. Uh, continue to strengthen us that we might uh, live well for you in this place. In Christ's name, amen.